Since the time of Ezra, it has been um, a a tradition of the people of God to stand when the Word of God is read. Would would you stand if you can? Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? Consider and answer me, O O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. Have a seat, please. As Pastor Dennis said, uh, we're kicking off our Summer Psalter series. Um, But for for my sake and, and... And for our sake as a community, I don't want you to think, okay, I can just set aside our 117 series, Learning to Do Justice. We're not not pausing from that this week. This week, we see David, the psalmist, crying out in the midst of suffering and in the midst of injustice. And so we're going we're gonna to enter into the Psalms while continuing to think, what is our right response to injustice? And I think, I think many of our Christian communities today around the United States are, are frankly uncomfortable with this sort of psalm. And I think that that has everything to do with why so many So many of our churches have abandoned any concern for justice. My argument to you this morning is this. If we do not learn to pray and worship, both individually and corporately, songs of lament, psalms like this one, that we will not learn to do justice rightly. So what in the world do we do with a psalm like this? A little little aggressive, right? (laughs) What do we do with it? Why is this so important? David, it seems to me that David is fairly demanding here, right? Why does he think he can talk to God that way? Why does he expect answers from God? And why, why does David seem to think he has the right to be upset that the wicked are prospering? And he does have that right, but why? So to answer these questions, before we even get into what the psalm itself says, I want to take a look at this psalm in its canonical context, in relationship to the rest of the Bible. So the Bible is built on Torah. Have you you heard that term before? Torah? Say Torah. Okay. Whenever you hear a word you don't know, shout it back. That way we... Okay. Anyway. um, Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Maybe you've heard it called the Pentateuch. Torah is its original name. And we need to look at the Psalms in light of Torah because that's the thing that David came in reading. That's how he knew God. He knew God through that lens, and we ought to too. 
So what Torah is, really briefly, and this could be like a whole series or 10 years of, 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 looking, at, of looking at Scripture, and I've got to watch it. I've only got a certain number of minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm a teacher, I think, in units, not lessons. <laughs> Try to get lunch. We could be here all day. No. Um, Torah is a covenant. Now, that's not a word we use much, but it's, it's like a contract. It's the thing that makes, uh, that makes the Bible so unique in world history in that God makes a covenant with his people. He, in, in, maybe in, in language that's a little bit more familiar, he marries them, right? And, and in a marriage, you have responsibilities, and you make promises. And so God enters into this mutually, like, binding relationship with his people. And he does this with, with Abraham. And, and, and understand, he calls Abraham by grace. And Abraham responds through faith. Sometimes we get this confused. God calls his people. He's always called his people by grace. And it's always been that he desires a heart response through faith. But like anything, like any relationship, there are responsibilities both ways. And so God at Sinai, where, and, and look at this in its, in its ancient context, all the language is marriage language. God is marrying, is marrying himself to his people. We know that in relationship, there are responsibilities. I have responsibilities to my wife. I have responsibilities to my daughter. It, that does not make me love them, but that is an expression of my love and a right thing, right? So God had said to Abram, Abram, your responsibility in this is you be a blessing to all the nations. And with Moses at Sinai, he says, okay, here's how, this is how it's going to work. And he gives 613 commands for the Israelites to follow so that they would be a blessing to the nations so that they would fulfill their God-given purpose to put the glory of God on display and to lead the nations in worship. Those 613 commands were never about earning their like access to God. Don't, don't be confused. But like with any relationship, like with any relationship, if there's disobedience, if you fail in those responsibilities, then there's consequences, right? We would expect this. Anyone who's a parent or a child knows this, right? Disobedience has consequences. Disobedience is an expression of, of maybe lack of love. And so in Deuteronomy 28, God lays out the consequences for obedience and disobedience for his people. And he says to Israel, if you're faithful and obedient, then you will receive blessing in the city and in the country, in your basket and your kneading bowl. Sort of like you're, you will receive blessing, people of God, at the grocery store and in your, and in your kitchen. Your little tum-tum is going to do good if you are walking with God. Remember, they're in, a, they're in a context really different than ours where food was a matter of life and death, and it wasn't a guarantee. So God, so God says, look, if you want to eat, if you want to live, follow me. And then he says, he says, your armies will defeat their enemies if you follow me. But if you're disobedient, habitually disobedient, unrepentant in your disobedience, then there will be curse, discipline, and punishment. You will be cursed in the city. You will be cursed in the country, cursed in the grocery store and in your kitchen. Your enemies will defeat you so badly that the bodies of your dead soldiers will rot in the summer sun, for there will be no one left to bury them. 
which in the Old Testament, this idea of like unburied dead, uh, birds eating their flesh is, is sort of a picture of hell. It's not just that, they, oh, they've been defeated on the battlefield. No, 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 no. They have fallen away from God and are under his condemnation. Now, if we've only read Deuteronomy 28 by itself, we, there's, there's a risk here. We might think that God has set up some sort of like karma system. If I do something bad, well, then something bad is going to happen to me. And if I do something good, then I'm going to get blessing. And it's going to be really, really simple. And all of life is going to be totally, totally predictable. We know that life's not like that, right? So let's look, uh, look for a second at the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Proverbs does say that God has woven into the fabric of creation his moral law, meaning that the righteous often do prosper and the wicked often do suffer failure because of just, well, their wickedness. Wickedness is going to lead to failure. But that's where far too many of us American Protestants, far too many of us American evangelicals have stopped, isn't it? We have said, whether um, explicitly or implicitly, that, well, all suffering is deserved, and the right response to that suffering is to repent. How many times have we heard, oh, poor people are poor because they're lazy? <laughs> Should have seen my first job, what I got paid. Anyway, uh, I'm, reading, I'm reading right now The Color of Law, which is an incredible book. <laughs> and the the lengths since, since World War II that both government and private sector ha has gone through to force segments of our society, particularly African Americans, into urban ghettos, keeping them there, underpaying them, overtaxing them, caught. See, if we, if we say, if we say, oh, all suffering is deserved and the right response to suffering is, is, um, is to repent, you know who we sound like? We sound like Job's friends. Not, not Job, not God, his friends who stand condemned. See, Ecclesiastes and Job point out to us the vast complexity of God's creation and his rule over it. We cannot know why. We cannot know how he does what he does or why he does what he does. And he says to Job at the end, he says, could you even run my world for 10 minutes? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I uh, uh, placed the heavens and the stars? Where were you, Job, when I did all of this? You can't know or understand. And so it is that in God's good creation, in his right ruling and sovereignty over the world, that the wicked do sometimes prosper and the righteous do at times suffer and God typically doesn't explain why. Look no further than Jesus and the disciples. So we live in covenant relationship. We live in covenant relationship with God. Therefore, we can call on and depend on God for our needs. Not only can we, but we should, right? My wife wants to know my needs. She wants to know my stresses. She does not want me to hide those away from her as if that's love for her somehow. She wants to share in that with me. And so does our Lord. 
So we know, we know that God has said in Ecclesiastes and Job that the right way to live is to, is to obey his commands even in the midst of the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. So that brings us back to David's question. Notice David doesn't ask why. He doesn't ask why. He asks how long. I expect because he's read Job and he's read Torah. He expects God to rescue, though he doesn't expect God to, save, uh, to explain himself. We need this, church, don't we? I need this. So Psalm 13, verse 1. Psalm is a poem. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme because it just doesn't work in Hebrew. Sort of everything rhymes. Um, in Hebrew poetry, you, you expect parallelism. You expect repetition. You expect the structure to do sort of the poetry for you. So notice his fourfold repetition. Verse 1 and verse 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies exalt over me? Do you feel it? He's just crying out. Just the pain is palpable, right? So he asks four times, how long? How long? He feels forgotten. He feels like God is hiding from him. He asks how long because he knows that God has promised to save. And he may not understand the why of his suffering, but he knows that the suffering is temporary. Now we might, we might wonder, like, Gee, is David, is David fleeing from Saul? Is he fleeing, fleeing from Absalom? Did a battle against the Philistines go poorly? What's the circumstance? And, well, he doesn't tell us. Which is sort of great for us, right? Because it means that we're, that the psalm is open to be sung and prayed in a variety of contexts. It's almost like David understands intuitively or implicitly what Romans 8.18 says. I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He knows God is good. He knows he has a Savior, and so he asks, how long? He doesn't know when he's going to be saved. Could be in the next 10 minutes. Could be in the resurrection but he knows he has a trustworthy Savior. So while, it, while he's in the midst of despair, he has not abandoned hope. Because if he had abandoned hope, I expect that he would have just stopped here. How long? And, not, you know, like that would have been the end of it. Maybe you've been there, right? Like I have. But he goes on. He doesn't stop. He cries out to God. He says, consider me. Think of me. Remember me. Answer me. Oh, Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The plea here is urgent. The request of David to attend to him and answer him in his need. He starts with, uh, with two commands, two verbs. to Consider me. Answer me. Remember me. Answer me. Hurry, God. There's no time to waste. Like, like, like a child, give me, give me. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? 
chill. He asks God to light up his eyes, which is a figure of speech uh, that we find elsewhere. Um, and, it, and it contains the idea of sort of renewed strength or sustenance. Maybe you remember the story of Jonathan, Saul's son, the first king of, of Israel. Um, he's out fighting Philistines. He's having great success. And he comes across honey. And he eats some of it. And his eyes light up. He's, you, you, you know the feeling. Maybe it was that first cup of coffee this morning, right? Light up my... No, all right. Um, so David is asking, maybe it was the third cup of coffee this morning. No, um, he's asking God to renew his strength. And he's emphasizing that. He's crying, God, if you do not intervene, then I'm going to die. Now for David, this death was real and imminent, wasn't it? Most likely. This is not exaggeration. It's not hyperbole for him. He is fighting wars. He's fleeing for his life time after time after time. Now, if we were in prayer meeting and I came in and I sat down and I said, God, give me strength lest I die, you'd probably be like, yo, I just want some calm down. Hashtag first world problems, like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And there's a rightness to that. And yet, like, notice, notice the heart of David's plea. He is in this confessing that his life, his livelihood, and his success is totally dependent on the grace of God and his blessing. So which regardless of the severity of our problems, first world or otherwise, this is true of us. David's plea before God to hear him, to answer him, to renew his strength lest he die, affirms and confesses God's sovereignty over his life. Now, T a few weeks ago said, you know, what, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to preach a psalm, what's the first one that comes to, comes to mind? And it, well, it's this one, Psalm 13. Um, in part because of a song by a, a band called Chain and Chain. <laughs> and, and I found myself, like, praying this psalm um, often enough, singing this song, really feeling the emotion of it for an entirely, like, first world problem sort of thing. It was because I was single, <laughs> Anybody relate? <laughs> For like six, how long? Oh my God, all my friends are getting married. They have kids. Their kids are entering elementary school. And here I am, lonely in a little apartment. <laughs> Which, you know, in retrospect, I kind of want to say to myself, like, dude, calm down, man. Is it just me or is dating like the worst possible system like ever created? Most of the, in a, all right. I think I prayed this and I prayed the how long part and I think I missed the rest of it to be honest. I got the emotion, but I missed often the comfort. That God is sovereign 
that he is in control, that he is still good despite my frustrations, despite my trials, and the thing that I needed in those, in, in those moments, in those lonely moments early in my ministry career was to, was to say, God, answer me, light up my eyes, because it's, it's, it's you on which my like, life and livelihood and success depend. Verse 4, he says, lest my enemies say I prevail over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. In verse 4, David renews his concern that his enemies, did you notice at the end of chapter, at the end of verse 2, he says, my enemies will, what does he say? Uh, how long shall my enemies exalt over me? How long shall my enemies rejo- uh, 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 celebrate my failure? He says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David renews his concern that his, enemies, uh, that his enemy is rejoicing over his destruction. Now, there's a word play here. It's hard to see in the English. Um, and I'm not going to butcher any Hebrew for you this morning. Um, But the word shaken here at the end of verse 4 and the word death at the end of verse 3 sound really, really similar in Hebrew. And so he's saying, in in essence, like, God, if you don't renew my strength, I'm going to die. And if 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 I'm shaken or fallen, if if I'm shaken to my death, my enemies will rejoice. Now, why is this so important? Why does David say this? Why does David bring this in, in, in particular to God? And I, and I think it's, it's this reason. When the enemies of God's people defeat God's people, when they rejoice in the defeat of God's people, who are they really celebrating defeating? God, right? Again, here, I think David is thinking of Moses. Exodus 32 just finished uh, the, the whole um, business with the golden calf. God is angry, righteously angry, and he says this to Moses. Uh, Exodus 32, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are stiff-necked. They are stubborn in their sin. Now, therefore, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said to him, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, here it is, he says, Why should the Egyptians, God's enemy, say with evil intent did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self uh, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars in the heavens And all the land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from this disaster that he had spoken 
of bringing on his people. So in essence here, David's cry is, David's cry when he says, God, my, if, I, if you don't save me, my enemies are going to rejoice uh, they're going, uh, they're, that they have prevailed over me. Not just that they've prevailed over me, but God, that they've prevailed over you. His cry is in essence, God, hallowed be your name. Defend your name by saving me. I think here David is remembering that life isn't a story about him. That in and of himself, David's story is immaterial. But David's story and our story has meaning when found in the larger story of what God is doing in the world. It's that redemption story that we enter into that gives meaning and purpose and value to all that we do. So he doesn't just say, God save me. He says, God defend your name. I don't know about you, I don't think I have many enemies. I don't think. So this is, this is hard, right? Lonely single Matt crying out to God, how long? It's not an issue of enemies. We're not people conspiring to keep me single. But I realized something this week. I may not have enemies, but when I face suffering, when I face um, discontentedness, when I face trials, that if I'm not, if I'm not depending on God for him to answer, if I'm not waiting on his goodness, if, if I'm saying God has brought this suffering on me and now I'm going, to, I'm going to do whatever I want to get mine, if I respond in selfishness instead of faith, then what am I doing? I'm giving God's enemies reason to rejoice. And you know what? There were times in my heart and in my life, in my singleness, that I think I did give God's enemies reason to rejoice. Verse 5. Really the turning point of the whole, the whole psalm. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, when he says, I trusted in your steadfast love, that's a particular term. I'm guessing if you've been around church for a while, you've, you've heard it. It's, it's chesed. Have you heard this term, chesed? Um, David's invoking this, and it's, it's hard to translate in English, and it's hard. It's a, the ESV has done its best. But it means something like covenant love, like marriage love. And not just love is like a, like a feeling, oh, I love that dish detergent or those shoes. No, like, like that, that commitment, that responsibility that a parent has for a child or a, a husband to a wife. Or, um, or it's, that, it's that reciprocal love and respect. It's not limited to marriage, but, uh, but it's certainly descriptive of it. It's used in particular in any formal relationship where care and concern by one requires care and concern from, uh, from another, from the other. So the the, this phrase, this particular use of chesed, in your steadfast love, is only found one other place. 
And I think David means to allude to, kind of reference back to um, that story. It's Exodus 15. Moses is singing a song or writing a poem after the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. You know the story. And he says in uh, Exodus 15, we're going to start in verse 11 and go through eight, verse 18. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, uh, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows them up. Now, here it is, verse 13. You led, you have led in your steadfast love, in your hesed, the people whom you have redeemed. You guided them with your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard and the, the, the nations have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm, that uh, uh, they are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And you will bring them in, and you will plant them on, on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your holy abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever. It would be so Jewish, it would be so biblical for David to take this little phrase and seek to invoke that whole song. We do this, right? With the shows that we watch, with our friends, you know, we, we can quote just, we can quote a line, right? And, and you, know the, you know the whole, like the whole movie comes back into your head. <laughs> I can spare you quotes. So David is doing this here with the scripture because it, it's, it's in his soul, right? So he says, he says, save me. Uh, I have trusted in your chesed. That in the midst of my despair, in the midst of this injustice, in the midst of the wicked prevailing over me, God, I still believe that there is no God like you. God, I still believe that you are majestic in holiness, awesome indeed, and doing wonders. You have redeemed a people for yourself in the past, and I'm trusting that you're going to go on redeeming me and this community. I will trust in your word. You, David, note that. David does not seek to find hope or solace in his circumstances. At no point here does it say, like, oh, God came to me and I feel better. Or, like, suddenly, like, the, the clouds broke and the sun shined through. No. No. There's nothing's changed. And yet, he's coming back to his foundation, that the, like, in the word of God. He understands his life experience, his story, all of life, in light of the larger biblical story. He is not engaged in wishful thinking, oh, everything is going to be okay. I think we've all been in situations, big or small, where no, it hasn't been okay. You've got to stop saying, oh, wait, everything's going to be okay. No, sometimes it's not. And he is trusting, in spite of his circumstances, in the character and power of God, our King. And that alone is enough reason to rejoice, even though he doesn't feel it. That's hard, isn't it, saints? 
He says, therefore, I can sing, for God has dealt bountifully with me. He saved his people. He doesn't know when the circumstances are going to change. He doesn't know when, when his current circumstances are going to change, whether it's now or the resurrection. But he trusts in God's promise. And that is reason enough to rejoice. So I said at the beginning, I think this is critical both to us and to our seeking to do justice. I don't know that I've proved that yet. <laughs> So this psalm, Psalm 13, is called a psalm of lament. It's a sad song, a song of darkness. Between one-third and one-half of all psalms are either lament psalms in and of themselves or contain significant sections of lament. And yet, as Amos and I work to pick out songs for this week, <laughs> we struggled we struggled to find any song in our modern worship library that did what Psalm 13 did, does. And what so many other psalms like it do. And there are songs, but most of them aren't designed for corporate worship, right? There's lots of songs, if we're not listening to Christian songs. <laughs> how, many, how many pop songs, rap songs, uh, country songs, right? It, not, um, so many country song jokes, right? But this is not the place. So many songs. Songs of anger and protest. Songs of breakup, right? Which, like, <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I used to love those songs, and then I got married, and I was like, yeah, I don't care. Just, just cut out half my iTunes. So if our culture gets that we need this, and the Bible does it, why, why doesn't our worship? Not that there's anything wrong with so many of the songs that we sing, right? Indeed, we rightly praise our Creator and our Lord. Uh, there's a scholar, um, Christian scholar, uh, his name is Walter Brueggemann. Um, such a sweet last name, right? Um, he says this, I'm going to quote him a number of times here. Um, he says, it could be that such relentlessness of our worship being happy, being positive, being focused on sort of praise in isolation is, a bold def uh, uh, is an act of bold defiance in which the psalms of order and reliability are flung in the face of disorder. In that way, they may insist that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Such a mismatch between our life experience of disorder, chaos, sin, and struggle, and the, and the faith speech of orientation, God's goodness, God's praise, like happy songs, could be a sort of great evangelical nevertheless. Think Habakkuk 3.1. Such a counterstatement insists that God does, uh, does in any case rule, govern, and order regardless of how the data seems to appear. Could be. The church that I grew up in, uh, which I dearly love, I would not be who I am today without them, at some point in, uh, in high school or college, decided to um, have two different services, one with contemporary music, one with traditional music. 
And the contemporary service, they named celebrations. So we had two services. We had traditions and celebrations. Probably shouldn't have done that, but um, I remember coming home and seeing on the sign just inside the front doors, celebrations service, 11 a.m. And I was struck by the implication. Is this service only for celebrating? But not for any of the other emotions that are normal to the human experience? I don't think they meant that. But I think it was the implication. David so often couches his faith uh, uh, and his proclamation of God's goodness, even his celebration, as we see here, in his experience of a corrupt, sin-ridden world full of pain and suffering. And my concern for us this morning is that a happy-only liturgy is one that cuts people off from the gospel. And, 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 and I say this not just to us, but to, like, like, the church in America as a whole. It's just, like, I don't know that we do this well. I don't know what it is about our culture that... How many times have we preached the gospel and called people to die to self and then followed that up with a happy song? I don't know about you, but dying to self is hard. It's painful. It hurts. <laughs> right? Does the discontinuity of emotion, the inability of our hymnody to walk a person from despair to hope actually cut people off? Actually cut us off so that we've got to go and turn on some secular music when we're sad and turn on Christian music only when we're happy. And so, and so we turn on our favorite, like, sad song, and we shout how long at the wall, and never say how long, Lord. This certainly isn't keeping with what James 4 says. But God gives more grace. Therefore, God says, uh, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives, great to the humble, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Worship through lament brings us to a place of humility and allows us to appropriately grieve our sin and our circumstances and renew our trust and faith in God. So if this is so central to the testimony of the Bible, why doesn't the church as a, on a whole do it very well or do it very often? Well, I think on one hand, the American church just isn't quite as committed to deeply reading the Bible as we'd like to think we are. And I fear I'm not either. And on the other hand, I suspect that to sing or to say Psalm 13 out loud together in church threatens us. Brueggemann again. It's my judgment that the action of the church is less 
a defiance guided by faith and founded in the good news, and much more a frightened, numb denial and deception that does not want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life, the sinfulness of life, the painfulness of life. The reason for such relentless affirmation of orientation seems to come not from faith, but from the wishful optimism of our culture. Such a denial and cover-up, which I take it to be, is an odd inclination for passionate Bible users, given the large number of psalms that are songs of lament, protest, and complaint about the incoherence that is experienced in the world. At least it's clear that the church that goes on singing happy songs in the face of raw reality is doing something very different from what the Bible itself says, does. I'm increasingly convinced that the abandonment of the psalms of lament goes hand in hand with the idol of, of, modern suburb, of the modern suburban American dream. That dream of upward mobility. Private neighborhoods with little guard houses and gates to keep all the poor people out. With private schools, high test scores, fancy colleges and fancier jobs, which, uh, which over, the, over the front of many still say poor whites only. whether explicitly or implicitly. To pray and worship psalms of, uh, through psalms of lament is a threat. Keeping up with the Joneses in our culture admits, uh, for, uh, sorry, never admits that we're hurting. Never means, means never saying I'm sorry. Means never backing down. Never admitting that we're out of control. Never admitting that it's all just credit card debt. We've made it when we can go from private neighborhood to private golf club to private church, never having to face the realities of the suffering world around us. That's a temptation for all of us, isn't it? The American Cowboy, John Rambo, Jason Bourne, Tony Montana, Jerry Seinfeld, they've got no time for lament. They're too busy conquering. Conquering prophets, conquering enemies, conquering sexual partners. But these characters are not real. And even when we encounter them in our world, they will not stay this forever. Lament, both individual and corporate, forces us to abandon the arrogance of the American dream and embrace the humility of our Savior that our Father will exalt. Bring him on again. To this point, sorry, the point to be urged here is this. The use of the Psalms of darkness, the Psalms of lament, may be judged as the, uh, by the world as an act of unfaith or a failure. But for the trusting community, their use is an act of bold faith, albeit transformed faith. It is an act of bold faith on the one hand because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretend way. And on the other hand, it's bold because it insists that all such experiences of sin and suffering and disorder are proper subject for discourse with God. Nothing is out of bounds, nothing precluded, nothing inappropriate. 
everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart. To withhold part of life from the conversation is to, in fact, withhold part of life from the sovereignty of God. Thus, these psalms make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech, everything, uh, brought to, and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. God's desire for us is to stop pretending. Stop pretending we have it all together. <laughs> About three minutes before I came up here, Ellie peed on me. It was ten minutes before. I knew I came with the anointing. No, sorry, that was terrible. Now, I don't mean to invoke here. Maybe, maybe you, you heard this. Back in the, like, like the early 2000s, everyone wanted to be in a church that was real. You know, they wanted to be in the real small group. They wanted to be in the real Bible study. They, you know, we've got to be real together as if like we had to come into church every Sunday and like break open a box of tissues and have a little cry. No, come on. It's perfectly normal and perfectly, perfectly okay to come to church. It's fine. I'm a beautiful baby girl, a wonderful wife, a job I love, a decent place to live, a car that works well enough to get me here. Life is good, and I want to praise God. I want to praise him for his goodness. I want to sing happy songs. And yet there are all too many days when grandma's diagnosed with cancer, when dad's diagnosed with Parkinson's at, in his 60s, there's another shooting, another sexual assault, another broken marriage of dear friends. And we need to find space to confront these realities in our worship and our prayer. I'll never forget Stacey and I's first Sunday here. We didn't know anything about Anacostia. We didn't know anything about Anacostia River Church. We just had heard of Pastor T. We were struggling to find a church home. So we came. And I think it was Jahil came and gave the pastoral prayer. It was actually a lot like the pastoral prayer this morning. Two years ago, and, and a young man, I think a young man from this school, had been shot and killed. And we spent probably 20 minutes that day praying, right, praying for his family, praying for this community, praying for the, for the gunman. And I was moved, saints. It was the, by, by God's providence, it was the first week of the 5Ms series two years ago. But that prayer told me, and I wouldn't have explained it this way, but I, but I have the vocabulary now. That prayer, that prayer told me this is a church seeking to be on mission, not seeking to be in maintenance mode. And I don't know that I've ever been in a church that way. But saints, to stay on mission, lament must become part of our regular routine. Regular lament, even when personally we're doing fine, when I'm fine, draws us to open our eyes to the pain and injustice and sin in the world around us. How many of us have gone home during this, during this series about justice and felt deeply pained by the injustice in our world? If you weren't feeling pain, read the internet comments. That, no, sorry, never mind. Thank you. Maybe don't. That might lead you to sin. If we come to church 
only seeking to engage in God's goodness and not, cre- uh, not, uh, not creation's brokenness by singing only happy songs and, uh, and reading only encouraging verses, then we will never do justice, love, mercy, or walk humbly with our God. The failure of most evangelical churches to lament allows for all of the victim blaming and poor shaming that the church in America is known for today. So if we don't train our faith speech to respond to suffering in faith, then we will um, do all we can to avoid suffering and pain and even sin hiding it under the rug. When we enter into, into the community of God's people by grace through faith, having taken on the signs of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's, Lord's Supper, we bind ourselves to God in covenant relationship. God who is our king, who promises to redeem and restore us, who longs for us to call upon him to fulfill his promises. This means we must know those promises, and it means that those promises ought to be sung, ought to be prayed in the midst of our pain and our hope uh, to him uh, who is our Lord and Savior. And I think if we do this well, we will know in our hearts and have confidence in our Lord for us to then go out and show mercy to the suffering and bring justice to the afflicted. And if we do that, if we do that, we just might find ourselves entertaining angels or serving Jesus himself. May it be so. Let's pray. How long, O Lord, will you forget the poor, the segregated, the oppressed, and the unborn? How long will you hide your face from them? How long will souls decay in comfort and complacency? How long will enemies rule your land? Consider us, O Lord, our God, for people are dying. All over the world, your enemies are boastful, and too many of your people cower. May we be a people who trust in your steadfast love. May our hearts rejoice in your salvation so that we may learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow that the world would know that you are God because of us. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, our King and Messiah. 